Welcome back to ES250, Intro to African American Studies. I'm Dr. Courtney Cox. And last time we had Falana Payton, who is a film historian and scholar, thinking about the ways that African American life is reflected on screen, both past and present. I'm really excited today for our guest, Reggie Ugu, who is a New York Times reporter who focuses on all things pop culture. I really wanna, before we dig into questions with our guests, kind of give a little bit of an overview of what I'm thinking about with this week's readings. I think we got a lot of the black exploitation stuff from Falana last week, um, and we talked a little bit about the impact of the 90s specifically. I want to touch on um, the Smith Shamadi piece, the really long piece that you read this week, Shaded Lives, as well as the They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us essay, um, Black Life on Film from Hanif Abdurraqib. One thing I really want to take a second to think about is in the Beretta Smith Shamadi piece, there's a lot of interchangeable terms used to describe African Americans in TV and film. And I really want to bring home the point that she's making as a black woman that is a scholar studying black lives on screen, is making her own vocabulary language to talk about these different words and phrases that have been used to describe African Americans throughout history. And I really want to double down on the fact that she's using those as a stylistic choice to point to these various ways that black people have been discussed in other ways. In terms, this is kind of like a reclamation project that she's doing. And so what I really want to emphasize here is that when you are writing in your own work, when you're writing your essays, when you develop your podcast for the final project for this class, that you can use African-American, you can use black, but when she's using these other words, I'll give you an example. When she uses a word like colored, in many ways, for a lot of folks, when they hear that word, that harkens back to a time of segregation, of segregated water fountains that would read white or colored in many ways. So it's this way that that term isn't a, a slur per se, but that is really hearkening to an outdated term that we no longer use. There's a lot of these words that we now consider outdated, inappropriate for you. So I really want to emphasize that um, I have at least one paper I grade per year, um, no matter what I'm teaching, where black people are referenced to as colored. And I really just want to use this as a point of education for us to talk about um, both specificity, like what it means to call someone African-American as someone that is of the diaspora that's in the United States, of the United States in a particular way, and what that means when we use other terms. So black is this kind of global term for the diaspora. So I don't want to get too much in the weeds on that. I just really wanted to double down on that because it is a stylistic choice that she's doing and using. And I, while I definitely want to emphasize and suggest you take much of her um, her research and her work under consideration, I don't want you to um, use the same kind of language for that reason, that historical consequence that I just discussed. Okay, so one of the things that I think is really interesting that is coming up in the piece that she writes is thinking about the, his the history of these sitcoms and thinking about the sitcom as a category that we don't take too seriously. You know, sitcoms are the canned laughter or the studio audience and thinking about these are supposed to be our comic relief. They're exaggerated kind of forms of, of everyday life. And so, and she's thinking about television comedy in this particular way of what it means in terms of the overrepresentation, especially when we think about the 90s, of black comedy versus other genres of black television that could have been offered. 
and kind of thinking about what the lens of blackness in television means. And she starts by thinking about whiteness in television, both in terms of the kind of shows, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, The Waltons, these shows that that were kind of seen as the the epitome of television and what it means as she writes to think about whiteness first before we can start thinking about the black sitcom and thinking about whiteness as she writes it takes shape and form through overlapping and sometimes contentious definitions of its presence and normality so she cites a couple of scholars who talk about whiteness signaling the production and reproduction of dominance rather than subordination normativity rather than marginality and privilege rather than disadvantage. And so that's really important to think about when she's talking about whiteness again. Whiteness doesn't mean white people so much as the idea that renders whiteness normal. The, the idea that tells us what's normal, what's useful, what's typical, uh, what's normative. And so thinking about that, that shapes what we see on television in terms of representation. It's this unseeable, unknowable thing that's kind of always kind of around us. Smith Shamati writes, Whiteness reigns as a controlling, dominating, patriarchal, standard-bearing ideology that regulates visual production, influences viewer consumption, and exists without notice or name. In its invisibility, whiteness, along with blackness, supplies an overarching context and meaning to television representation, especially comedy, end quote. And that's on page 31. So one of the things that I think is really great um, to think about when we think about that representation pretty soon we'll get to this idea in the Ugu piece, hashtag Oscar so white, that hashtag that circulates is rooted in this idea, not of white actors and actresses as much as whiteness as the norm, the standard that would influence things like Oscar nods. So one of the other things I think, you know, before we get into the, the specificity is thinking about what it means um, to have the economic factor brought in. Thinking about Fox is coming in to compete with the big three, CBS, NBC, ABC. Fox shows up and uses the diversity of blackness on television to kind of carve out its own lane. And so thinking about what that means in terms of sitcoms and then UPN, WB come in later as other networks that are happy to take on black writers, black shows in order to kind of try to compete with some form of difference with the big competitors, those big three. So some of it is thinking about these shows that are being referenced. And I don't know how familiar these shows are for you, but a lot of these shows really signaled this time that folks thought, you know, especially we start with the 90s, 1990, we get the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which has this ever enduring theme song that most of us are aware of. And so thinking about that, um, this comedy that can also have these very serious moments, that can have these very important commentaries on how blackness is class, is read as class in a particular way, but also we're seeing this representation of an upper class black family in Bel Air, this very exclusive neighborhood in Los Angeles. And so thinking about what that means um, to have this class dynamic, these class conversations, conversations about family, conversations about authenticity on the show is really important because it is a, it's a sitcom that's also feeding you a little bit of vegetable with your dessert, right? She also brings up Martin as this enduring show that has this very beloved life after life in the black community, living single, one of my favorites, as a show that's showing black women as successful, as happy, as vibrant in a particular way that in many ways counters the previously heavy male centricness of these shows. 
We get to something like the mid-90s with Moesha, as you heard from Falana Payton, one of her favorite shows, is this very coming-of-age show of Moesha, this girl of Los Angeles that's growing up and, and having this kind of coming-of-age story. And Moesha is played by Brandy, who was an R&B singer that's very popular at the time um, and just generally awesome in life. Um, and so thinking about these shows in conversation, I think it's really interesting to think about different the different kinds of ways that blackness is represented on these shows. And, you know, I think one of the things I, I it's really difficult, I think, to have this conversation and this class. And normally I feel like if we were in person, I would honestly give you the framework and the language from these texts. And then we would watch something together and really dissect it and really dig in because these things are meant to be communally shared. And, and just like when we talked about with sports and music, it's very strange now that, you know, we aren't going to movie theaters. Movies are being released on iTunes. People are buying them and consuming them at home, you know, immediately rather than us having this communal experience, especially with a comedy, right? Someone else laughing at something might actually make it funnier to me. That's typically how it works when I watch movies in a theater. So thinking about what it means um, in terms of the larger um, Shaded Lives piece is this way that there are these mainstream entrances for these particular shows that have a moment. Fresh Prince is definitely one of them. And thinking about issues of race, gender, and class on these television shows. I think thinking about representation as this one solidified, this is a positive or negative portrayal, um, doesn't really do us any justice. There's a way that um, a lot of times with television representation and that kind of analysis, we want to think about does this represent women or people of color or poor folks in a positive or negative light? Is this going to be progressive in terms of making us empathize with someone, for example? And I really want you to think about that in terms of not only what we're getting from this piece that's talking about these very um, poignant, great moments for representations of black women, for example, or these moments that are very problematic. This idea that just because something is created by black people doesn't mean that it's a great representation of black folks or that everyone is represented equally across the board, whether they whether it's an issue of queer representation, of representation of women, representation of class in a particular way. She says, and thinking about like a feminist strategy of reading these shows, that it requires us to call for opportunity, recognition, and subjecthood, she says. In other words, African-American women centering in sitcom narratives. The comedies I've examined authorized that ability only in small quantities and sometimes only as a token. Thus, for black women in situation comedy, the struggle continues for recognition, value, and sustained ability to share in the laughter while laughing out loud. So I really invite you this week to think about shows that you watch, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm pulling that quote, by the way, it's from page 68 of the piece. Think about the representation of shows that you watch on a daily basis or, or movies that you really love. I think that's really important. And even thinking about the piece Black Life on Film and the Hanif Abdurraqib piece, to me it was really poignant to think about what Black Life on Film looks like. He's talking about both in terms of the Rodney King police brutality um, clip that circulates rapidly, which is happening the same time as like Boys in the Hood is coming out. And then as he's watching it later, he's 12 or 13, he's having this experience watching this film, you know, on a VCR. And in many ways, he's getting this pleasure from watching something that he knows he's too young to watch or supposedly too young to watch, as well as the familiarity he finds in watching the film. He realizes that those are the same people that that he knows in his neighborhood. And he realizes there's a kinship he's finding, even as a kid in the Midwest, to folks on the West Coast in Los Angeles. 
he's finding that he's not surprised at, at who dies in these kinds of films. He says he's seen it all too well himself. And then when I read this piece now, I'm obviously thinking um, about what it means to have this new kind of renaissance of black television and film. At the same time, we also have this rampant amount of police brutality that is also caught on film. So to think about black life on film, both in terms of the representation of these scripted things as well as the real life ramifications of what it means as there are more body cams available. We are there we have the circulation of social media where we do see black life and black death on film in a particular way and, and kind of what those those two forms represent in terms of the visual medium. Finally I, I really want to dig into this idea of this 90s connecting this 90s moment to today and, and for that I'm gonna need some help. Reggie Ugu covers all things pop culture for the New York Times. He also has bylines at Billboard and BuzzFeed and several other places. He is the author of the 90s director's piece as well as the hashtag Oscar So White Oral History assigned this week. Reggie, thank you so much for joining us. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for asking me. How's it going in New York right now? It's going all right. We're hanging in. It's very yeah. strange. It was a little post-apocalyptic, but... You know, that's 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 where we are. <laughs> I'm grateful to be healthy. Yeah. Remember going outside? Like that's like a concept, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going outside and not seeing people in masks and glaring at you if you take your mask off and yeah. Socializing. I remember socializing. That was fun. I was thinking earlier today about just in revisiting those pieces, the 2017 Oscars. Like, remember when, like, the La La Land Moonlight debacle, like, was the the thing? Mm. That was, like, it. We didn't talk mm. about anything else. And now that just feels so far away, like, 10 yeah. years ago. And it was only a few years ago. It was only a few years. Everyone, when I was working on that piece, everyone was shocked that it had been five years. Um, yeah <laughs> but yeah it feels like like ancient history but it's, it's really really fresh I want to start by thinking about the 90s we kind of left off there um, with Falana and thinking about you know the 90s are seen as this rich renaissance of African-American TV and film what are some of your kind of favorites going back even further than five years from that era um, yeah um I was I just sort of discovered the film side of things a little bit later uh, actually, I mean, like, I grew up in an, an immigrant household, and I was my parents weren't really hip to like everything that was happening in the in the cinema. But in my house, we were watching a lot of Fresh Prince. Obviously, that was my favorite. That was a really Will Smith was very important to me as, as a young man. Family Matters, of course, Moesha classic. Um, there was a TV was really um, really big for African American. Uh, storytelling um, in the 90s and, and in my house. Uh, and then on the movie side of things, you know, Boys in the Hood, of course, is just an all-time classic film, full stop, Malcolm X. You know, I, in my 90s piece, um, I have some some directors from that era who 
you know, didn't necessarily have the level of prominence of a Spike or, or, or John Singleton, but did really amazing work, um, including Darnell Martin, uh, who directed a movie called I Like It Like That, that definitely more people should see. That's one of my favorite movies from that era, really progressive in its politics as well, to a degree that I think might surprise people, certainly for its time. Um, and, and the other one from that piece is Love Jones um, by Theodore Witcher, which is an amazing, <laughs> it still, still holds up, I think, in a lot of ways. And he's, it's his only movie that he's, he's ever done. And he, people have a lot of affection for that, for that movie, um, which I think had a, kind of a different voice, different aesthetic than a lot of other mainstream um, black films that were coming out at the time. And so I think a lot of people appreciate that now. Um, but yeah, those are just, just a few of my favorites from, from the 90s. Yeah, I think those movies have a lot of resonance. And it's interesting how many directors from that time period, which obviously your piece illuminates a lot of the reasons why, only create, you know, one film or one television series that kind of has that lasting impact. But there's not mm. always this, you know, request for an encore. Um, you're currently mm. working on a book project that considers what this current moment means for creators of color. What similarities have you found between the 90s and today? Yeah, I think um, there are definitely some similarities. You know, there uh, probably the biggest one is the level of enthusiasm. There's kind of a, there's kind of some of the coverage of the 90s that I was looking at um, when I was working on that piece, you know, it was, it was treated as this kind of gold rush kind of energy out there in terms of people being really excited about people in studios, like white studio executives being really excited about the black market, the black film going market. And, you know, seeking out black films and black filmmakers. And I think we're seeing some of that now. And then, you know, there was a lot of optimism as well, because, I mean, if we can back up a little bit, yeah, you talked about, you talked about black exploitation but basically, I mean, every kind of twenty years, there's 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 a wave uh, of, of black filmmakers and black films that studios get excited about. And every time, you know, people are optimistic that it, it means permanent change. And I think people were optimistic in the '90s that you know, there was going to be a more integrated Hollywood. And um, I think people are optimistic now. It didn't end up being true in the '90s now is, is, is a little bit different and maybe we can talk about that but um, I think optimism is something that those two periods have in common as well. Yeah it seems like that there is that cyclical like the 70s the 90s mm-hmm. we get into the 2010s and we have yep. this rejuvenation so it does seem to have like a rhythm to it um, and there mm-hmm. is a lot that has changed for example social media that's a huge aspect streaming um, the way we view shows or films, you know, quote unquote, together. I mean, especially even now, now we're watching things on Zoom together so we can feel some kind of connection. All these things have kind of shifted the landscape. We're able to talk back, you know, in a way to those in the industry, we can at them on Twitter or Instagram. Um, In the Oscar So White oral history, director Ava DuVernay is quoted as saying, quote, it was a catalyst for a conversation about what had really been a decades long absence of diversity and inclusion. And she's referring to the hashtag Oscar So White and what that means. What does that kind of signal for you when thinking about how we can talk back to the industry when we do recognize these things are cyclical and may not actually be real change? Yeah. I think it's hugely important, um, the social media piece in this, in, in, in kind of, when you think about um, how we got to where we are now. Because what happened is, you know, 
people are talking back and people have have these platforms where they can express themselves and they can you know they can express their their ire for you know studios that 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 kind of drop the ball in terms of the represent in terms of representation um and it's really hard to ignore because the media is there as well like you know the journalists pay attention and write articles um and that puts a lot of pressure i feel like that's been a really important component in terms of the times that we've had uh, improvements in representation is the media pressure uh so i think that's an important piece of it back in the 70s you know there were there were protest movements then as well um but they were kind of led by NAACP a lot of the time or sort of uh, civil rights groups like that um now things are just much more streamlined and much more immediate with social media and i think that's been really powerful i think that's like even thinking about in your piece right the way that you're laying out that you know april rain who is a lawyer by day just happens to like look at these nominations, see what's going on and say, there's not people of color here. I know they made films this year. They're not being nominated and mm -hmm. sends out this one tweet that is like humorous. It's really tightly written. Um, and mm -hmm. it's not about being part mm -hmm. of a larger organization. You can be a singular person that has something yeah. that kind of goes viral. Yeah. Yeah. And there's can be a critical mass of people who can kind of pick up that thread and, and, and run with it. There's also these streaming platforms, which have given a range of new voices space to tell stories. How has that kind of shifted the landscape for you? Yeah, that's the other thing. Is just what happens when you have a new platform or a new um, a new kind of media come come up is they it just increases competition. So we were talking about the '90s earlier. What happened in the '90s was, you know, there were these new networks. We went from having the three big networks. ABC, NBC, CBS, all of a sudden Fox um, shows up and Fox turned to African-American writers and storytellers, recognizing, and again, an audience that was being underserved by the other networks. And so you get something like Martin or In Living Color, and that kind of changes things because they are, you know, the market is real. And, uh, people start to pay attention. And then you have the WB come along and do kind of a similar thing. And that was really behind a lot of the blackness of the TV in the 90s. And so now with the streaming platforms, Netflix is, you see them doing kind of a similar thing where, you know, they have a huge deal with Ava DuVernay. They have the deal with Justin Simeon. They have a whole campaign called uh, Strong Black Lead that's catering specifically to, to black, black audiences. And so there are just many more opportunities. And, and, and the streaming is also just part of like a, a general, um, general lowering of barriers to entry in terms of being able to not only get distribution for a film, but to, but to produce one because the technology is, is, has gotten cheaper and more accessible. And so I think all of those things kind of work together to give opportunities to groups of folks who have been historically you know, shut out from the traditional uh, centers of power. Absolutely. And not only that, like in terms of the creation, the production, distribution of 
new shows with new voices, new faces, but there's also an opportunity through these platforms to revisit older shows, which for me, like Living Single is really where I'm living right now. Um, or for some experienced shows from decades past for the very first time. So this idea of something that's rewatchable that brings that, if you wanna go back and watch Love Jones, it's not something you have to own on DVD. It's something that streaming platforms are also kind of giving new life to these things. Previously, you know, I'm thinking about like TV land was kind of like the only place that was really mm. showcasing like what we would say vintage, you know, it's like leave mm -hmm. it to Beaver, I Love Lucy. Um, and mm -hmm. now there's like this second kind of renaissance of television shows that I grew up with or movies I grew up with that are now having this kind of second life. What are these opportunities to, you know, maybe quote unquote, watch back, give us in terms of thinking about a decade like the 90s? I think there's a lot that can be learned from going back and watching some of these movies and for me it's like every time i go back I've, I've gone back and looked at black films from from every era really and the thing that i'm always so struck by is just like the level of sophistication and the, the nuance and the storytelling and depictions of black life and black personalities and just the overall level of quality i think what happens is because people have short memories and because these things tend to go in cycles and so i think in terms of going back and looking at the work of the 90s and people should look at it and kind of recognize that the talent has been consistent i mean you can go back and look at 19 movies from 1917 you know movies from 1920 oscar michelle it's always nice to be reminded that the potential is always there for a quote-unquote renaissance and, and 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 to take that take from that like the need to keep the pressure on, on the industry to keep, to, so, that we, so that the door doesn't get closed again and we can all get the kind of content that we deserve. Absolutely. Your New York Times piece interviewing several directors from the 1990s received a lot of feedback, especially from those currently working in the industry. There seemed to be a lot of resonance there in that piece for, for many people. Why do you think that is? Well, that piece kind of started from, from, from talking to directors. I interviewed Barry Jenkins for a piece, and I interviewed Terrence Nance, who um, did the HBO show Random Acts of Blindness. Both of them had this thing happen to them where, like, they they had their original film. So Barry Jenkins did Medicine for Melancholy in 2007, I want to say, or 2009. It came out. Maybe he shot it in 2009. And, uh, and, and, Terrence Nance had a movie called Oversimplification of Her Beauty that came out in 2012. And those movies got a lot of buzz. They played festivals and there was excitement around these filmmakers. And then it took them several years to do a follow-up project. So Barry Jenkins makes Medicine for the Medical in 2009. It's not until 2016 that he gets to do his follow-up movie, um, Moonlight. <laughs> so, that was just like, I saw that happen to them. And I, and they were telling me about this idea of the sophomore curse, which was a thing that, you know, people have a lot of hype around the first movie, then the second movie doesn't happen or it's gonna disappear. And I was really curious about that. And so I started looking at the nineties and that's when I saw that all these people who had done brilliant films, as I was saying earlier, the talent is always there. You know, there were just as many talented filmmakers in the 90s as there are today. But for some reason, the, the career just didn't take off. So I think people really connected with it because they, they it matched up with their experience. 
and it kind of shine, it helped shine a light, I think, on this pipeline problem that we have of you know or a bottleneck maybe is a better way of thinking of it where you know we can't get the people who can make decisions to well first of all we need people of color to be the ones making the decisions and that's kind of the, the end of the end of the story yeah i feel like you know part of that is also um like the the idea of saying like the pipeline versus the bottleneck i think is mm -hmm. really interesting because mm -hmm. There, there's no longer the excuse that the, the talent, we've always known the talent was there, but now it's visually everywhere, right? So thinking mm -hmm. about someone like Issa Rae who starts with a web series and how YouTube mm -hmm. has become this, you know, um, platform for some folks, right? The idea of being able to start your career that way where you're just like, mm -hmm. you and your friends are like trying to make it happen when you get off work and that can launch into an HBO career. And, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. like maybe a 360 deal. And so thinking about, there's no longer the denial that the talent's there because it is inescapable. There are people that I feel like networks should have signed based on their vibe. Like there's ways that I find that black creators have been able to tell stories on TikTok, on Vine, in every kind of platform, in every kind of way. So we know the talent is there. Um, and now it's like you said, bottlenecked where executive producers, producers um, have to, people that are in a place of power to put those people in a writing room, put those people um, and casting calls get their voices and their stories told um, is no longer a matter of of who, but it, now it's more like there's so many creative, talented people um, that are really at this point it really has to be an institutional shift where people in power that are at the top of these um, various companies are making decisions rather than saying, you know, how are we going to get more black actors signed? It really has to be like, how do we get more? you know, black folks, folks of color, women that are in these really strong positions within the academy, within major studios. It seems like that seems to be the next kind of question that we should be asking. Yeah, that is the next question. And I think that that's the difference between, or potentially the difference between what we're seeing now and what happened in the 90s. So in the 90s, you know, we had these directors, but there was like on the studio side, right? The people who actually green light people who actually make decisions um, who can give someone with a line a deal, there was no movement. You know, that remained extremely white and extremely male. And so it was not sustainable. Now, what will determine whether or not, you know, this movement that we're seeing now can sustain is the extent to which it penetrates the, the C-suite, the extent to which we see people rise to positions of power within within the industry. There are some signs of that, you know, at Disney, which, um, you know, has, has been a leader in terms of really pushing representation um, or doing films of quality that are, you know, catering to different communities. You know, there was an executive there named Tendo Nagenda who produced uh, A Wrinkle in Time, who produced Black Panther, Queen of Katwe, with Lupita Nyong'o, and uh, he's at Netflix now, and so we'll see what he's able to do there. I think Netflix, yeah, as I was mentioning, has been pretty strong in, in terms of black content. There are going to be more people like him, and 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 uh, I think that's what we have to watch out for. Oscar Silway was kind of talking about the Academy and that side of things which is obviously there's a lot of there's a lot more work to be done there 
I think, you know, as the piece kind of explored, there's been progress, but, you know, we're starting from a place that was just so monolithic. So, so white. I mean, the, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, so it's going to be, it, it's going to be a, it's going to be a long road. But uh, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's what we have to, that's what we have to keep our eye now is, you know, okay, we have the directors, we have the actors, but who, who, who's producing, who's running the studios, because that's what's going to determine whether or not this is going to last. So obviously in isolation, many of us have had time to really get onto our list that we've compiled. Um, we've kind of pushed through them. We burned through them. We need some new, fresh things. You cover all things pop culture for the New York Times. What are you watching right now? And what should we definitely be watching? Yeah. Uh, we were talking about Killing Eve before we started the recording. That's one of my favorite shows. Very excited that that's, that's back. That's my um, <laughs> I would definitely recommend people check that out. I'm trying to think of like what has been my favorite stuff. Um, I've been obsessed with this show, Devs. Um, have you heard of this show? No, the, what's this uh, show? Nick, Nick Offerman. It's uh, created by Alex Garland, who did um, Ex Machina and Annihilation. And it's this kind of near future speculative sci-fi show about a startup in Silicon Valley that has a quantum computer that can kind of, I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but it's like, <laughs> it's, the show is all about free will and like quantum physics. And he's able to, to kind of render that in a kind of surprisingly compelling and really kind of fascinating way in terms of how strange the, the physical world is and how strange the laws of nature are like in reality. So it, I've been obsessed with that. And also Westworld, we've been watching that a lot, which has, actually has some similar themes in terms of like a supercomputer and, and speculative sci-fi and free will. Yeah, those are, those are a couple of the shows that I've been watching. I'm excited about The Last Dance. I haven't actually seen it yet, but I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to, to binging that. It is uh, the best. I wish I yeah. could assign it for every class <laughs> I teach ever. Um, I highly recommend. It. Yeah, no, I, that's high praise coming from you. Those are a few of the things that I've been watching. What, what have you been watching besides playing me? Um, yeah, The Last Dance. I mean, I think people are just, people that are into sports are just like so hungry for anything they haven't seen right, yet. Right. Um, yeah. That it, it's kind of given me everything. I wish they had just released like all 10 so I could just shut down my life and just watch <laughs> 20 hours straight. Right. Um, but I... I think one of the things I'm I'm also kind of leaning and thinking about, uh, maybe sci-fi is just this great pairing for kind of like the space that we're in, in terms of like just go, mm -hmm. going full dystopian. I just started, re started watching for the first time The Leftovers. Um, oh, I love The Leftovers. And it's kind of, kind of weird like the actual word pandemic has been used in the show multiple mm. times already and I'm in the first season and so mm -hmm. it is very odd to watch at this time and think about um, 
closeness, losing folks, grief. Um, and I think mm -hmm. we're kind of in a season of grief um, globally. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to kind of watch that now. I'm obviously into the current season of Insecure and thinking about mm -hmm. what that means in terms of Black representation, in terms of Black LA, um, as someone that mm -hmm. has recently moved from Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. It kind of gives me this kind of nostalgia that I, I kind of already miss LA in a particular way. So I think mm -hmm. it's a good way to think about um, what young Black LA looks like, um, what it could look mm -hmm. like in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I always think of you guys whenever I watch Insecure. <laughs> Especially the Coachella episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to stop the interview <laughs> right there. <laughs> Reggie Ugu, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was fun.